So like I said, I'm going to be talking about religious trauma and uh, something that's really important to me. Uh, I guess, you know, <clears throat> for those that maybe don't know my qualifications to talk about this. Uh, so I uh, have a bachelor's degree in theology that I got from Bible college in my 20s. And uh, then I pastored and was involved in ministry, every aspect of ministry for a lot of years. And then in my mid-30s, I went back and got a bachelor's degree in psychology, a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling. And uh, in the state of Colorado, I'm a licensed professional counselor. And I've been, you know, I've been counseling people uh, since I was in ministry. And one of the reasons I went back and chose that as an area of study is because I was so terrible at it when I started as a pastor. It was like my biggest weakness, I felt anyway. So I went to work on it. So when we talk about trauma, we're talking about distressing um, events or distressing experiences. There are various different levels of trauma. Don't equate trauma with a disorder. Sometimes when mental health professionals are talking to people that aren't as familiar with the clinical language and they talk about trauma or a person experiencing trauma, their mind immediately goes to uh, post-traumatic stress disorder because that's what they know. That's kind of what's out in pop culture. Um, and so I'm not talking about something that's a disorder. I'm talking about just painful events. I'm talking about just pain, things that are distressing, things that are difficult emotionally for us, how we um, process those things and how we cope with those things and what that has to do with religion and what that has to do with uh, what people are calling deconstruction and what it has to do with awakening. So before I get into that, I want to, and then also I want to tie it in with um, some of what we see in our world uh, today as well. So I'm going to cover a lot of ground, but I'm going, I am going to use some scripture to begin with. So give me a second to find it. I'm kind of sluggish this morning. I don't know what that's about. I don't know if I'm going to be able to go back to uh, getting up and getting ready on Sunday mornings and having energy. <laughs> this has been really nice. And I've heard from a lot of people, even local people, they're like, man, it's been nice to just uh, sit down with a cup of coffee and listen. And then I know others miss getting together. We obviously miss each other and miss the fellowship. And I know others uh, miss the meditation and we certainly miss the worship and those kinds of things. So I'm going to read to you from Matthew chapter 13. Jesus teaches the parable of the sower. And this is identified in the gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke as being the sort of watershed parable, the most important parable about the kingdom. Uh, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus reveals it as the, uh, he calls it the, the mystery of the kingdom. But I want to read you what Matthew says here. Uh, the in verse 10 of Matthew 13, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. This is why, okay? This is the reason that you get it and they don't. It says, though seeing, they did not see, though hearing, they did not understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. I want you to focus on that. This people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. 
Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. So he's saying the reason they can't see and the reason they can't hear is because they've done something. They've closed their eyes or their hearts have become calloused. And so even though it's it's plain or it's available to them, let's put it that way, and even though they're seeing, they're not seeing, even though they're hearing, they're not hearing, even though it's available to them, they're not understanding, or the heart has to do with feeling. So you could say uh, it's about seeing with the eyes, hearing with the ears, and feeling with the heart. And then I'm going to come and read Hebrews 12. And this is going to seem completely unrelated, except that it's also about the kingdom, a passage about the kingdom. But I'll bring it together for you. Um, in Hebrews 12, verse 25, he says, See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less shall we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At this time... Or I'm sorry, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he's promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. All right, so... Uh, he, he says in there that the kingdom can't be shaken. He says there's coming a time when God's going to speak once more and everything on earth and everything in the heavens is going to be shaken. For the purpose of, the, the way the English translation says it, and I can't figure out why they translated it this way, but the English translation says for the removing of created things so that that which is eternal or that which has not been created or the kingdom may remain. Uh, so a couple things here that we're talking about. We're talking about the condition of the heart. Let's go back to Matthew. He says their heart has become calloused, which a callous is a wound, but it's a wound that occurs over time, right? It's a wound that, I mean, I guess, you know, if you put on a new pair of shoes or something, you go for a long hike, but it, it's, it's from this sort of constant rubbing or friction that this happens. And then a, a layer of skin grows over that until it becomes hardened, until it becomes hardened, for the purpose, for the body adjusting to that repeated irritation so that it becomes stiffened or it becomes hardened so that it can withstand it, that repeated irritation. Or it's an example of the body's adaptation to irritation, right? <laughs> so think about this with trauma. Think about this with emotional trauma and distress. Uh, it's not something maybe that's, that's earth-shaking and really distressing, but we're talking about something that is a persistent emotional wound or a persistent emotional rubbing or a pers- uh, consistent over and over again trauma or emotional irritation until the heart develops a, a callus over it, uh, until the heart becomes wounded but also hardened from the irritation and the pain. And so Jesus says when that happens, something happens in the senses that even though they're seeing, they're not seeing. Even though they're hearing, they're not hearing. They've disconnected at levels that have affected the senses that prevent them from hearing what should be plain or seeing what should be right in front of their eyes. And as I was thinking about this verse and thinking about the context of it, 
I'm thinking about what Jesus said. He said, if they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears, then they could turn, they could adjust, they could change, and I would bring healing to them. So, the healing requires that you see something that you did not see before, that you hear something that you did not hear before, that you understand with your heart, you have a different understanding, or you feel something differently than what you feel with your heart. Now, from a clinical perspective, when people suffer trauma, particularly repeated traumas, they do disconnect in a lot of ways from their senses. Because you're experiencing trauma in your body. You're experiencing trauma in time and space. So a person who grows up in an abusive home, let's say, or a person who is in an abusive relationship, a relationship with an abuser, uh, maybe domestic violence, or it's just a situation that is a constant irritation, um, you want to get out of it. You're there because your body is there. You're there because you're stuck in time and space. And there are some situations of trauma that you cannot get out of. The shutdown or some of the things that have happened because of coronavirus is a perfect example of this. Particularly when it first came out, it's like, oh, the virus is in our community. The virus is spreading. Uh, we have to stay at home. We have to be afraid of each other. Our world changed pretty suddenly. And you would go to bed at night, or I would at least, and think, man, this sucks. This day sucked. But guess what? Tomorrow I'm going to wake up and it's going to be the same thing. And so it's kind of like that callus. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's kind of like that, that consistent irritation that you have to deal with over and over and over again until you adapt, until you adjust to it, until you become hardened to it. But part of what you want to do at times or a normal response to trauma is you want to get out of your body. So people who have dealt with trauma, almost without exception in my experience, and Michelle uh, or Don, you know, you're welcome to chime in on this as well, with your clinical experience or understanding of trauma, feel free to chime in on it. But you, you, so you become numb. You try to get out of your body. You disconnect from your senses. Life is not as sensual anymore. And I'm using that term correctly, sensual. Um, so, you know, people talk about when they fall in love, the, the opposite of this, right? When they fall in love or... They, they release that trauma, and then all of a sudden the sky is bluer, the, the grass is greener. Um, they're more connected, they're more grounded. So you can tell if you've dealt with trauma by how grounded are you in your body? How deeply are you involved in the present moment? How deeply are you involved in your life? And so what happens when you have that emotional pain, the other thing that you do in terms of disconnecting from your body is you escape into your head. You escape into your brain. So your brain will take on hyperactivity in order to keep your attention away from what you're really feeling in your heart. So maybe you lay down at night and your brain's just going, you know, that could be from too much uh, uh, stimulation, too much going on in your day, or it could be there are feelings in your heart that you don't want to deal with. Other people will escape using uh, substances or distractions. So even video games, you know, constant playing of video games, uh, constantly looking at pornography, because um, we know, you know, like alcohol and drugs, uh, using food, different things, all these things can be distractions for you.
that the bottom line is you just don't want to be grounded in your body. You don't want to feel what you're feeling. And so you're doing all these things as sort of escape mechanisms. And the other thing that can happen as a result of trauma is you, 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 you develop this sense of powerlessness or you lose confidence in yourself and your ability to cope with problems in life. Now, those are mild symptoms. Um, greater symptoms would be clinically what we call depersonalization or derealization, where people can literally, because of trauma, disconnect. They can disassociate so much that they disconnect from reality uh, at various different levels so that um, uh, they can experience distortions in their senses. Um, a person can have a trigger that reminds them of a trauma and it really is like almost like on the um, movies or the cartoons where the world starts spinning or something I mean they, they feel that way in, inside they, they feel completely disoriented in their body uh, things get uh, more distant or more close or there's just distortions distortions in sound that's a sign that trauma is coming up that the person doesn't know how to deal with and they're shutting down. So I'm explaining all this to say that I think on some level when Jesus says in Matthew's gospel that seeing they, they, they see but they don't see, they hear but they don't hear, and they don't understand, and he talks about their heart becoming calloused, and if they could shift something then they would be healed. And I know one of my life's purposes right now is to wake people up to the trauma, not just of religion, but the trauma of the Christian religion, the trauma that it imposes. And if you understand the context of Jesus' ministry in Judaism, he is being sent to the children of Israel. He's sent to Israel. He said it himself. He said he's sent to Israel. Later on, John's gospel says he's sent to the world. But the synoptic gospels, Jesus is quoted as saying, no, I'm sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He refused to heal one lady because she was the wrong race. She wasn't, uh, she didn't belong to Israel, at least initially. He refused to, to heal the woman or, or deal with the woman's problem. So you have to realize you're dealing with a nation that is under trauma. They had gone into Babylonian captivity. Uh, it's too bad that the Apocrypha books were taken out of our Bibles in the Protestant church. But if you go back and you read the Maccabees in the Catholic Bible and some of this stuff, then you, you realize there were repeated national traumas that they had suffered. So we're dealing with a people who had suffered from national traumas. And Jesus is being sent to them. So they are looking for a national savior. They are looking for a national hero that is going to establish them as an empire again, that's going to establish them as a kingdom again. But Jesus does not rescue them from that trauma. <laughs> really, the trauma that Jesus addresses, if you look carefully at the teachings, at least glimpses of it, the teaching or the kingdom or the trauma that the kingdom that Jesus is talking about addresses is their religious trauma. 
the trauma that they experience because what they're not seeing and what they're not hearing and what they're not getting is the concept of God and who God is and what God has for them. They have a distorted view of God, you might say. They've been traumatized by their God. I'm just going to sit there, let that sit there for, for a few minutes. Because they're told in their scriptures the reason famine occurred, the reason war occurred, the reason they lost their land was that Yahweh did it to them. Jehovah did it to them. God did it to them because they weren't obedient, they weren't submissive and obedient to their God. Just going to let that sit there for a few minutes. Now, I know this triggers people. Why do they get triggered? <laughs> Maybe because they've been traumatized. There's something else in um, the clinical world that we talk about, which is uh, a trauma bond. So trauma bond, if, if you've ever experienced, you know, or, or seen somebody who is in an abusive relationship, they're in an unhealthy relationship, everybody else can see it, but they can't leave, they can't get out of it, they keep relating to that person even though that person's toxic for them. That's called a trauma bond. Now, the studies show that, so, so what happens is, is they're, they're not bonding over love, they're not bonding over good feelings, they're bonding over pain, they're bonding over guilt, they're bonding over shame, and they have this loyalty contract in their heart that even though the relationship is toxic for them, they can't get out because they're too loyal because of the loyalty contract, and that's called a trauma bond. Now, what creates a trauma bond, or what studies show, one of the things that creates a trauma bond is a principle of inconsistency in reward. <clears throat> inconsistency in reward. So here's one of the things that psychologists, social psychologists learned about very early on, was if you get a reward all the time, <laughs> you get bored with the reward. You get bored with the activity. So if you, like let's say you want to change a behavior. If you want to change a behavior, you can change that behavior through positive reinforcement or rewarding yourself because you did the behavior, behavior change that you wanted to do. But what they found out was that consistent reward would not make the behavior take. You would lose interest almost. And it would become too routine. It would become too mundane. The subconscious mind gets bored. And so... Um, the reverse of that, they found out if you uh, stagger the reward so that you don't get rewarded every time for the behavior, you're more likely to adopt the change. That's more likely to become a, a habit for you. But the other thing they found out was if the reward is not only inconsistent but unpredictable, then that really locks in the behavior. So what happens in a relationship where there's a trauma bond is there's there's horrible, horrible arguments, there's there's demeaning disrespect, there is a consistent pattern of saying and not doing, saying and not doing, saying and not doing, all these sorts of things. But mixed in the middle of all that mess, there's just enough 
love. There's just enough reward. There was a time when things were normal. There was, oh, I feel good now. I feel rewarded. So there's this inconsistency of reward that strengthens the bond and strengthens the loyalty. And there's so much of this in church, guys. There's so much of this in spiritual relationship with God. I mean, just to give you an example, and I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm simply talking about experience. I don't believe that real God, one of the things I love about my friend Ben Urban, Ben, I don't know if you're watching, I haven't been able to see who's been logging on, but one of the things I love about my friend Ben, when he posts, he talks about real God. He always identifies real God because it's important to separate creator, source, God, the divine, from the monster God that a lot of us grew up with and a lot of us knew. So one of the things that happens is prayers to this other God are inconsistently answered. So there are, there are traumatic situations and problems that we come up against that we deal with and we cry out to God and we ask everybody to pray for us and we believe and we confess and we do whatever and it doesn't happen. And subconsciously, you are going to believe that God did that to you. In that sense then, you are going to experience it as abuse from a lover. But there are other times, hey Ben, I, I see you're on. I love that, man. Um, but there are times when the prayer works. There are times when you pray and you see something supernaturally happen and you got the reward. So you have this inconsistency of reward that can lock you in to a loyalty contract. That can lock you into literally a trauma bond. So let's just talk about some of the traumas. From religion. How many of you, how many of you remember, and we've talked about this one a lot, the thief in the night teachings, or the left behind teachings, or the late great planet Earth, or 88 reasons that Jesus is coming back in 1988, or Ronald Reagan is the Antichrist. Do you remember that one? Because he had six letters in his name, and Nancy was into astrology and all that stuff. Um, you guys that have some, some seasoned saints out there, you know what I'm talking about. How many of you, or the Left Behind series, how many of you were traumatized by that? How many of you, let's just talk about Bible prophecy for a minute. This idea, you know, this idea of the mark of the beast and one world government and stuff, it's such a retread. It's such a retread. And it's so demonic because it shapes people's view of the future. It shapes their view of the future, and it, and it does not paint a hopeful picture. It does not paint a healthy picture. It paints trauma. It paints a traumatic picture. <gasps> Shock. One of the ways that people brainwash, one, one of the ways that propaganda, if you study how propaganda works, one of the ways that it works is you shock people with taboo stuff. So, oh, my God, this group's into pedophilia. This, anything you can come up with that's taboo, opens a space, and then they make associations. Tom Hanks' pictures here, uh, Bill Gates' pictures here, whatever. They are manipulating you. And if there's if there's any brainwashing going on, it's the ones 
that are doing that that are actually the government conspirators doing the brainwashing to maybe see if they can manipulate the masses. I don't know. I mean, I don't believe that. I'm just trying to explain psychologically how these things work. And it gets layered with religion. It gets layered with duality. The sons of light and the sons of darkness. The good guys and the bad guys. The people that are with God and the people that are with, uh, the, uh, I don't know, um, the cabal. The people that are with um, the lizard aliens or whatever. And so... It's, it's creating this shock. It's creating this. And then they're making associations like the, the beer commercials where you have the, you know, the lady in the bikini standing next to the beer. And you know, drinking beer is not going to get you that, but more men will buy beer. So they will have a subconscious feeling. They'll have an arousal. They'll associate it with the beer. So now all of a sudden that association is. So you, you bring in the taboo subject. You bring in something that generates a lot of emotion shuts down automatically, bring in something that causes uh, fight or flight, automatically, when you go into fight or flight, when there is a threat, automatically blood is leaving <laughs> your frontal lobe where you do your critical thinking and it's rushing to these other places. So if I can shock you, if I can traumatize you, if I can threaten you, I'm literally doing a biological, <laughs> a neurobiological technique to cause you to shut down your critical thinking and open up your subconscious mind and then I insert everything I want and now you're stuck with it. Now it's there. Now you know it's true, not because it's true, but because you are programmed to see it that way. It's no different than stage hypnotism. You ever been to a stage hypnotist? Then they take you up and, and I remember the first time I saw it, they handed a, a, an onion to a guy and the hypnotist told him it was an apple and he ate the onion like it was an apple and said it tasted like an apple and all that stuff. That's how powerful your subconscious mind is, that it can literally alter your reality. And so this same kind of subconscious programming has gone on in the Christian church. They, 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 they've put scary movies out in front of us. They've put scary ideas about the future out in front of us. But more importantly, they put a scary God, a scary image of God out in front of us and told us somehow this God is going to be our savior. And then we relate to this God and we get inconsistency in rewards, which then just strengthens the trauma bond. Just like the uh, uh, inconsistency in reward, what do they call those things? The slot machine. The slot machine is based on that. It gives you just enough reward to keep you putting money in it. And it's programmed to make sure that, the, that, the, that you don't make the money. <laughs> but also it is programmed to get you addicted to it. And so... Religion can be an addictive programming. So there's the end time scenarios. There's the conspiracy theories. Um, but then, you know, it's this idea that God is going to abuse you, that God is going to teach you something, that God is going to, you know, sometimes he'll answer your prayers, sometimes he won't answer your prayers, whatever. Inconsistent reward. But then here's the sneaky thing. We're told that God loves you totally and unconditionally. That the God of the Bible is a God of love. This book, this book right here is a love story uh, between God and humanity. Okay, so we're programmed. It's not, it's not wicked in the sense that it is more tradition. In other words, I, I don't believe for one second that your average pastor, preacher, I know I certainly didn't, stands up on Sunday morning and says, oh, how can I manipulate people, how can I traumatize people 
they are coming out of their own programming. They're coming out of their own programming, conditioning, neuro-linguistic programming. I remember my mom, man, you know, singing Jesus Loves Me. I remember going to the Methodist church, Jesus Loves You. I remember going to church camp, Jesus Loves You. But I'll be honest with you, we didn't emphasize the Bible. We stayed away from the Bible. So it was easy for me to believe in a good God and in a loving Jesus. And we weren't Pentecostals, so we didn't uh, have the supernatural aspects where we said, you know, God's going to heal you, uh, you know, all that stuff. So we didn't get confused when we felt let down. You know, God's abiding presence was there. His love was co-suffering, all that stuff. So I had those really healthy programs. But think, listen, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And so after I got into college then, I began to think a little bit more. And I began to think, how do I get to know this God? And I was listening to a bunch of preaching uh, this morning and, uh, you know, people broadcasting their services and whatever. And I heard so much, you know, one guy study to show yourself approved and telling us to study the word of God because we need to study it to show ourselves approved unto God. Uh, if you want to get to know God, you get to know God by his word. God has rejected you because God has rejected his word. And so we're taught to look for love. Here's my point. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. So I was taught to, taught to look for love in the Bible. I was taught to look for wisdom in the Bible. I was taught to look for comfort in the Bible. I remember when I got baptized in the Methodist Church and I did get my first Bible, they gave me a um, bookmarker, a green bookmarker that were the promises of God for your needs. And so that was about all I knew about the Bible. When I get scared, I'd go to Psalm 91. When I would um, uh, need comfort, I'd go to Psalm 23. When I wanted to know that I was loved, I would go to you know John 3 or John 3.16 or something. And so you can find love in there. And so we're programmed to do that. Now, because I was a Christian, one of the first things I read was Josh McDowell. And Josh McDowell says the Old Testament is uh, all the prophecies about Jesus in the New Testament are fulfilled from the Old Testament. So I was taught, when I'm reading the Gospels, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. I was taught to look for Christ. I was taught to look for Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, all these things are subconscious anchors, controls, and associations that then govern and change the way you see and experience something. So did I experience comfort from the Bible? Absolutely. Did I experience inspiration from the Bible? Absolutely. You guys know I did. Did I experience uh, strength? So you're taught to look for these things. So it shapes your view. You're told almost hypnotically what to see when you go and you look at the text. And so then what happens, though, is because of these religious traumas, you know, we could talk about more, the God that's going to send you to hell. You better follow me or else when you die, you're going to go to hell. I mean, some of you, God bless you, that grew up in the Assembly of God or grew up in some of these Pentecostal holiness churches where it was, you heard a constant, you had a constant diet of, if you die tonight, do you know if you're going to be right with God? Do you know where you're going to be? There's a there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. That is a threat. That is a lover who says, love me and serve me or I'm going to beat you. Only it is magnified for eternity. It is magnified and multiplied 
over and over. And this God is a megalomaniac because he wants to control you. He's watching your thoughts. He's watching. Young man, young man, young lady, I want you to know right now that God sees your secret sin. Jesus is watching you when you're with your boyfriend. Jesus is watching you when you're with your girlfriend. And Jesus said that if you look at a woman to lust after her in your heart, that that's, you know, the same as committing adultery. And so unless you get that evil lust out of your heart, you're going to you're going to perish. You're going to be held accountable for every word you say. So you have a God that is examining your thoughts, that's examining your motives, that's, that's listening and recording every action and every word, and, 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 and somehow it has to be completely perfect. Now watch, watch the mental and emotional illnesses that happen. Man, people get OCD from this, obsessive compulsive disorder, because they have such a thing of perfection put out in front of them. You have to be this perfect being. You have to person for God to accept you, right? But then also watch the lack of boundaries. You have no boundaries. You have no sense of self. You have no place where God is not. So now you're being taught you have no place that's safe, not even in your own minds. So you cannot construct a, a healthy sense of self. You, ha you have no healthy sense of self at all. You have no no ability to set boundaries. This all-knowing God that demands this perfection. And then we're told, but here's the good news. God's like that. <laughs> God's like that. I mean, God demands that you be perfect because he's a God of justice. And his eyes are so pure that he cannot look on sin. Oh, but he just loves you so much that let's, let's look at, let, let, let's make the centerpiece of our faith when it's not the Bible. The cruelest device of torture and punishment that perhaps humanity has ever come up with. And let's put a man on it if you're Catholic. If you're not Catholic, then you got the empty cross. Ours is an empty cross because we believe in a risen Savior. But we still have to deal with how he got risen. And then we say, God did that. God loves you so much that God did that so you don't have to be perfect anymore so that he can forgive you. Now, guys, this is not a straw man that I'm putting up. This is the God that we serve. But he doesn't really forgive you unless you agree to believe in him and follow him. And again, if you grew up in these Pentecostal holiness churches, you grew up in the Assembly of God churches, you grew up in some uh, strict uh, Baptist church, you grew up in the purity culture, in, with the youth, you know, the guy that wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye has completely repented, made a video, apologized publicly, did a TED Talk. You should go check it out because of the millions of lives that he damaged. Listen, this damages people's sexuality. This damages people's boundaries. This damages people's, it causes their amygdala to swell. There's been studies that have been done that when, when God gets angry, your amygdala swells, you go into a fight or flight response. But see, that's why they're doing it, gang. If they can keep you in the fight or flight response with God, blood goes away from your critical thinking and they can tell you all kinds of stuff and you become programmed, you become brainwashed and you become certain because your subconscious is convinced that it's true. You become certain that it's true and everybody else is wrong. You're the one with the truth and everybody else has it wrong and then there's this trauma bond that we have with God and this trauma bond that we have with each other
I'll just leave it right there for a few minutes. And so we, we end up in the same position. So what has to happen then, this brings me to Hebrews 12, where it says, oh, let me, let me come back to the Bible, because I really want to make this point. I really, really want to make this point. You're conditioned to see love. You're conditioned to see Jesus as a loving Savior. You're conditioned to see God as, oh, he loved us so much he died for us, but he really didn't die because he got up. God didn't really lose his son. He didn't lose his son in the same sense that I lost my mom or that some of you that are watching have lost your children. They was just gone for, you know, a day or two. And then he got him back and back up into heaven. Like, that never made sense to me. Like, when I would see people that would actually lose a child, like, that child's gone from them for the rest of their lives. And however long that life is, that's it. But, you know, God gave up his son he could, for a day. And somehow there's comparison. Oh, I know people probably, you know, be listening to this and thinking that I'm blaspheming. <laughs> oh, yeah. I saw somebody say, yes, ladies. Let's just talk about women. You're sub something. You're, you're, you're less than for sure. Cause, you know, you were the one that was deceived. Eve was deceived. Um, I mean, all this stuff is there. And so what I would invite you to do is get away from the Bible for a while. Get away from it. <laughs> Don't read it. Don't study it. Don't even listen to me when I quote it. And come back to it and stop looking for it to confirm what your traumas need you to believe, what your religious traumas need you to believe about God. Or do like one of my friends, Brian Scott, told me he um, listened to the Bible on tape from Genesis to Revelation. So, <clears throat> go back and just listen to it as a story. Listen to the narrative of the Bible. What is the story that the Bible's trying to tell? And here's what you're gonna here's what you're gonna find out. I think it's the story of Israel becoming an empire, and it's a story of Israel and their God. A lot of progressive Christians try to tell us, you know, right now, it's real popular to be a progressive Christian. And they try to tell us it's it's the story, it's told through the eyes of the oppressed. It's told through the eyes of slaves. It's told through the eyes of captives. It's a critique against the empire. And I'm just going to say bullshit. I'm going to say, let go, that's just another neuro-linguistic map. And I'm going to challenge you, if that's you, let go of that map. Don't Don't read your Bible looking for those ideas. And listen to the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And yeah, they were slaves, but they were slaves that God chose in order to build an empire. Read Deuteronomy 28 to make them the head and not the tail. See that there's so much of this like shadow stuff in the Bible that we don't deal with. And this is what drives me nuts. I mean, I get it. I get it. But guys are out there, you know, study to show yourself approved. I'm like, you haven't even read it. You're telling me you, you couldn't say the things you're saying if you'd studied to show yourself approved. I did something for fun yesterday. You can find it on my wall. I went through all of Paul's letters, and I looked at things that he said to the church and to the leaders to get them to follow him, to persuade them that his gospel was correct. And I came up pretty easily with 11 different things, things like, um, if anybody disagrees with me at all, have absolutely nothing to do with them. He says that in the end of Romans. 
First Corinthians is a horrible letter. He tells them in First Corinthians, if you don't take the Lord's Supper the way I've instituted it and the way I tell you to do it, then that's why many of you are getting sick and dying. Now think about this. People in the community are experiencing their friends, their loved ones, dealing with sickness and death. That's a normal part of life. That is a random part of life. And they're being told by their leader, this is because you didn't follow the Lord's Supper the way I told you to follow it. So basically, Paul instituted a death penalty. A death penalty from God if you didn't follow his ritual. Then in there, there's a man who is involved in sexual immorality, so Paul doesn't approve of what he's doing. It, it's, you know, whether whatever the situation was there, the man sinned. So Paul doesn't, you know, Paul says, what we're going to do, we're going to get the whole church together. Here's what we're going to do. This person said, we're going to get the whole church together and we're going to conjure up Satan. Oh, and while you're there, I'll be present with you in spirit. So there was some kind of astral projection, some kind of spirit travel. And he's going to be present there to make sure to, to you know, somehow in the spirit, they're going to come in the spirit. They're going to conjure up the powers of darkness. And then they're going to give this man to the powers of darkness so that the powers of darkness will kill him. So that his body will perish, but he'll be saved. That's that's in your Bible. That's that's Paul. That's that's. I could go on and on. You can look at it, but there's eleven different things in there. If anybody preaches something other than me, let that person be cursed. Uh, he compares himself to the other apostles. He says, "I'm more devoted than they are. You should follow me." So my point is, when you're conditioned to think it's the inerrant word of God, then that's you're not going to see those parts of it. But when you understand these were human beings, and the story of the Bible in the Old Testament is empire building. It's empire building. I'm going to take you from the least tribe. I'm going to make you the greatest tribe, unless you don't obey me and piss me off, and then I'm going to wipe you out again. Um, and so he did, you know, in the story of the Bible. They went and they conquered Canaan. I mean, what about the God of the oppressed for the Canaanite woman who's having the baby ripped out of her womb because God told these people to do this? Uh, where's the heart for the oppression of those people? Where was the heart for the people? you got to understand, in Egypt, it wasn't just the Israelites and the Egyptians that lost the firstborn. It wasn't just Egypt was an empire, and it wasn't just Egyptians and uh, Israelites that lived there any more than it's just uh, white folks and black folks that live in your community. And so people of other ethnicities that had no involvement, no understanding of anything that was going on, they woke up to their firstborn being dead. And that that was God's plan to deliver. <laughs> See, all these things are traumatic. All these things are taboo. All these things are exactly what I was telling you before. They're, they're there to shock you. And then, we, you know, this stuff just comes into us. So it's, it's Israel's story. And so Jesus comes. This is going to bring me to the healing part. Jesus comes and completely reframes the story. Completely says, no... I'm going to completely retell who Israel's God is, and I'm going to completely retell Israel's story. And he tells it differently, and Paul comes in, and Paul tells it differently. But ultimately, 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 it's about Israel and their God. And it's an ancient book about an ancient deity. And then what we've done in religion is we've propped it up, and we have traumatized people with it. So... When Jesus is retelling the story, or let's do it this way. What's happening with a lot of us with deconstruction and awakening 
is we are seeing and hearing and understanding differently as layers of trauma, layers of callousness are being lifted off of our hearts so that we can be healed. But we cannot be healed and whole until we see with our eyes and hear with our ears and understand with our hearts. So what's the path forward? I'm no longer looking to take my ideas about God or about life from the Bible as an authoritative source. Because if I do, I keep going back to an abuser. I keep solidifying and strengthening the trauma bond. Because again, if you, if you peel away your conditioning, if you peel away your mental, emotional, and spiritual programming, here, here's how this works. I had somebody tell me on Facebook this last week that I, I didn't, you know, I wouldn't come into his line of thinking. And he says, it's because you haven't been born again. Because you haven't been born again, you can't see it. You can't understand the scriptures because you haven't been born again. And Doug Wentz, you know, posted, he said, born again according to who? Because here's what I've seen in my experience. In order to come into the Baptist religion where the gifts of the Spirit have passed away and all the supernatural stuff has passed away and the Bible is all there is, in order to be able to see that, you have to be born again of the Baptist Spirit. When you come into Pentecost and you see the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, you have to be born again of the Pentecost Spirit in order to see it. If you come into the Christian Missionary Alliance, you see that the main thrust of the Bible is missions and missionary work. And every believer is called to go to the mission field. And you have to get a revelation of the Spirit to see that. When we came into the faith movement, God wanted you to prosper and God wanted you to be healed. But you had to, ha you had to be born again of the faith movement in order to see it. So here's what happens. When you read something, and this is why I brought up Paul, and you're looking for spiritual sustenance and you're looking for spiritual connection, or you go to a church or you belong to a group and you're looking for spiritual connection with that group, you are feeding that into your subconscious so that your mind will believe it as real and as true and as having come from God, and it will shape the way that you see the world. Um, and you will, but, but remember I talked about last week the auras. So your thoughts are energy, your emotions are energy, your subconscious is energy. So now actually what happens is your aura takes on the energy of that teaching. You take on the spirit of that teaching. So a lot of people in the evangelical movement and the Christian charismatic movement, whatever, have emphasized Paul. So they have drunk Paul's words and they picked up Paul's spirit. Because Paul was a Pharisee, and Paul acts like a Pharisee. If you don't agree with me, you're going to be accursed. If you take communion wrong, that's why you all are sick and dying. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, he says, you shouldn't be having sex. He says, it's better not to touch uh, a woman. <laughs> uh, but if you have to get married, you know, the only legitimate reason to get married is because you're too damn horny to, to control it, and so I'd rather you get married than burn with passion. 
yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hand you over to Satan. See that Pharisaical spirit, and so we drink that, we drink that, we drink that, until our aura becomes charged with that Pharisaical spirit, and then that controls, that becomes the governing frames over even our relationships with God. And so what has to happen is this shaking. So we come to Hebrews 12. He says, once more, everything that can be shaken in heaven and on earth is going to be shaken. And the, and the English translations say, for the removing of those things that have been created. The word removing there is not a correct translation as I understand it. It's metathemai in the Greek. And it means a rearranging. And it comes from the word thesis. It's actually where we get the word metathesis. But the root word of it is thesis. Jesus is talking about understanding for healing. So there has to be a complete, this shaking that happens. The only way to be healed of these traumas, the only way to grow, the only way to progress, and if you are engaging, as my friend Ben Urban says, again, give you another shout out, Ben, real God, then there is going to come a shaking, but not just of stuff around you. There is going to come a shaking of your theses. You're going to go through a metathesis. You're going to go through, the word there means a complete rearranging. It doesn't mean a removing. It means a reconfiguring, a rearranging, or a deconstructing and then reconstructing. It's putting things in a different order, seeing things in a different light, seeing things in a different way. And so that's what's happening to a lot of us. It's like just all of a sudden, like like one of those layers uh, gets pulled from our heart. Trauma comes up that we need to be healed from, and we're able to see it for what it is. It's like it's like the woman that's in the abusive relationship that's like, oh, she looks in the mirror and, I don't know, sees herself and says, I can't believe, you know, and, and, and there's like that, that I'm ready to get out of this, right? So then there's got to be this psychic purging, a deep purging, a purging from your aura, a purging from the energy of it, a cleansing of it in order for you to be healed. And then there's a metathesis. Now you see things differently. Obviously, I see the Bible completely differently. I see God completely differently. I see myself completely differently. And I see life completely differently because I'm not going to take it from an outside source anymore. I'm not going to take it from uh, people that are authoritative or who have scholarship. And I'm certainly not going to take it anymore from the, the, the scriptures as the inerrant word of God or even hedging my bets and saying, yeah, but we know that it's inspired. Because here's the thing. Again, I, I keep trying to say this and I get sidetracked. You go back and read the Bible. You're not going to find a lot of love in there. You're not going to find a lot of comfort in there. You're not. You're going to find a small section of it where it's talking about love. It's not the book for the oppressed people and told through the eyes of slaves. It's a book that actually historically was put together by kings for the purpose of maintaining their empire. So they're not going to put together a book and make it available that's told through slaves. All right. Uh <laughs> So what happens if you believe God's going to send you to hell? If you believe God's answering your prayers, sometimes not answering your prayers. If you believe you needed God at a time when you were really desperate and God didn't show up, you have all these trauma associations that you're putting with, with, with God. And then you're being told, yes, but God loves you. And God is good all the time. And let's sing and shout the victory. When no, nobody had victory. Let's say a hallelujah. When people didn't have a hallelujah really in their heart, let's sing it as well with my soul. When it ain't well with your soul. And then you just feel guilty because, like, how come it ain't well with my soul? And I, don't even get me on, on the forgiveness thing. Like, like forgiveness is a good thing to have, and forgiveness is a great healing thing to give. But you cannot give forgiveness from a place of trauma. 
You cannot give forgiveness from a place of being a victim. You have to process the pain. You have to come to a place of empowerment. You have to come to a place of boundaries, which this God won't let you have because he's reading your mind and your thoughts. You have to have the ego strength then to be able to cleanse your system of the poison of the bitterness and all that stuff. And you can't forgive. Listen, if somebody's doing something to you repeatedly and demanding your forgiveness, uh, you, you, I don't even know what to say about that. It's abuse. You see what I'm saying? And so a lot of us have been abused. And then we break. We break with this stuff. We see things different. We see patterns differently. And we break with it. And then our friends traumatize us. And then our friends... Uh, traumatize us, family traumatizes us, because people will put these loyalty contracts, these soul agreements, and these trauma bonds with a God that really doesn't exist, an ancient tribal God. I'm not saying God doesn't exist. I'm saying Yahweh was the tribal God of Israel. There's no way around it. And being intellectually honest. The rest of that is just programming. And it's not true. You're seeing with your eyes, but you're not seeing. You're hearing with your ears, but you're not hearing. And so we wake up and we see these things and we hear these things. And it causes this rearranging. But man, it disrupts everything in our life. It disrupts our community. It disrupts relationships. And, and everybody at some point ultimately is forced with the choice. Do I be authentic with what I believe and authentic with my expression with myself? Or do I keep my relationships? Unfortunately, that, that's kind of what, what we become faced with, unfortunately. Now, I believe you can do both. I believe it's possible to do both. But my advice to anybody going through this is you have to decide which is more important to you right now in this moment, being authentic with your beliefs or keeping your beliefs to yourself and keeping your relationships. Because unfortunately, that's what we're faced with. So then that creates a whole other layer of trauma. So a lot of us really, I think I'm sure Vanessa put it out there because she's been really <laughs> preaching this, but a lot of us just flat need therapy. There is only one thing that's going to heal that and fix that thing in your life, and it's therapy. <laughs> but then, you know, look, look, all right, so let's talk about the, the shifts and the changes. This meta thesis that we go through, this rearranging. Because here's our problem. Here's what we're really facing, all of us. Why are so many of us waking up? And what are you saying, Aaron? What are you saying about the past? Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying I don't want to put that stuff in my kids. I don't want to sit down and teach my kids Bible stories. I don't want to teach them about a God that got so upset with humanity that he wiped out humanity and all the animals but saved eight people who uh, then one of the guys that was so righteous curses his grandson. Uh, oh, his grandson Ham, through whom um, the Ethiopians came, through whom the black people came, and then left a legacy of oppression and racial division in the name of God. I don't want to teach my kid that. I don't want to teach my kid uh, about a God who kills the firstborns, uh, sons, uh, firstborn everything. I don't want to teach my kid about a God who purports genocide. Guys, if this was just a small section of the Bible, this is the God in the closet. This is the shadow side of the Bible that we don't talk about. Nobody preaches on this stuff. Nobody talks about this stuff intellectually, honestly. Nobody talks about the mental and emotional damage that it does to people. Nobody talks about the OCD disorder that people have because they're going to your church, pastor. Nobody talks about the anxiety disorder that they have because they're hearing you, evangelist, uh, spout your angry, judgmental stuff. 
uh, nobody talks about, you know, uh, kids go to youth group and they're not taught how to manage their sexual energy or about sexual orientation or about what they might be experiencing. They don't have a safe place to open up and talk about that. They may be experiencing same-sex orientation. They go home and tell their parents, and their parents say, well, you're going to hell then and throw them out of the house uh, at 16 because they're so afraid, because you, pastor, you, man of God, have made them so afraid from your own programming and ignorance and not studying to show yourself approved unto God, and they become suicidal, and a lot of them complete, but, but all of them need therapy. Trauma, religious trauma, trauma bonds, because this God in the sky. Some parents used... The threat of punishing with hell with their children. If you don't do right, God's going to get you. God's going to send you to hell. God's going to lift his hedge of protection off of you. We have national traumas like 9-11. I think this is interesting. We have national traumas like 9-11 or like what we're going through right now. I'm not seeing or hearing it much now, but especially at 9-11. God lifted his hedge of protection. I mean, what kind of a dad is that, you know? <laughs> when the enemy comes, oh well, son, you didn't you didn't clean your room this morning, so uh, you know uh, the kidnapper's going to take you. You know we'll get you back, but it's going to be a bad you know week or two. I mean, literally, 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 this is the kind of nonsense that goes on, and we are getting to a place where this is getting so exposed and so talked about, and people do not have good answers. They have loyalty contracts. See, people will come at me, Aaron. You've gone too far. Aaron, you've gone too far. Aaron, you've, you're, you're leaving the Bible. Aaron, you're leaving the faith. They are trying to trigger a loyalty contract from a trauma bond with an abusive God. And it doesn't work anymore because they don't have answers. I bring up this stuff. What about the God of the genocides? What about the God of, of all this stuff? And they don't have answers. And, and the New Testament, no picnic either, which I pointed out with my post with Paul, that ain't no picnic. You, you want to belong to that church where if you, if you make choices that the leader doesn't agree with, with your life, that they, they conjure up Satan and hand you over to destroy your, your, your body. Um, you, you want to join that church where you're told it's better for you not to have any sex at all. You need to just be totally devoted to the Lord. But if you're too horny and can't handle it, then I'll, I'll marry I'll marry you, but, you know, really, you're somehow weaker and less than. That's in 1 Corinthians. You want to be involved with a leader who says, I have special revelation from God, and if you don't take the ritual right, God's going to kill you. The book of Revelation says, if you got, you got these wrong teachings here, Jesus is going to throw your kids into the sick bed. So don't, let's don't pretend the New Testament is that much better. New Testament, in many ways, is worse because we have that threat of eternal conscious torment hanging over us. So what's a, so, so this system is dying and here's where we're at. Um, we are definitely in a new age. We're definitely in a new age. The end times weren't even talked about in the church until the end of the 19th century and then throughout the 20th century. So astrologically we're in a new age. We're moving out of the age of Pisces. I don't care if you, how you see it. If you can't see that we're in a new age, I can't help you. <laughs> having eyes you see not, having ears you hear not. But there is, uh, uh, astrologically, this idea that we're leaving the age of Pisces. Pisces, by the way, isn't just one fish, it's two fish that are chained together. There's a cord, it's, there's bondage involved with Pisces. Aquarius, the reason some of you are seeing 1111 or 1111 became a big deal is because Aquarius is the 11th astrological sign. 
And so we've moved into the age of Aquarius. Uh, so here's, and I, and I believe that fully because before that was the age of Aries. You've heard me do this before. Aries was the ram, so that's, uh, fire sign, but it's, it's land. Uh, it's, it's shepherding. And so you see the age of agriculture and travel, uh, getting transit, getting from one place to another was, it was conquering the ground, the land. When we moved into the age of Pisces, it was a water age. So now we have ships and sailing the oceans and just discovering new worlds and all that stuff. And so you saw that primary mode of transit because it's being reflected by the energy that's hitting the earth astrologically. <clears throat> um, Aquarius is an air sign. So just the fact that we went from trains to planes to... Uh, uh, the the moon and the stars and, and that we're in this communication age and it's all happening through the air. That tells me right there that we're in the age of Aquarius already. But even if you don't believe that, just look at the things that are happening. But when there's a new age, there's a dying of the old age. There's a deconstructing of the old age and there's a rebirth. We see this with Jesus, a total re reframing, a total metathesis uh, from the age of... Uh, is it, is it Aries? I don't know. The ram. The one that's the ram. To the age of Pisces. To the age of Aquarius. But one thing that's interesting. There was a prophet um, in the 1900s who prophesied and said we were in a new age. We were in a new eon. And he got this and he said the first eon he talked about two previous ages. He said there was the age of the mother, the age of the feminine divine energy. And so that would be the age before the empires, before Christendom, when it was about the cycles of the earth, the feminine energy, the cycles of the earth. Uh, goddess worship was supreme. Fertility rites. Um, agricultural rights, Mother Earth. Uh, so really that age of the divine feminine. And then he said, after the age of the divine feminine, then we had the age of the divine masculine. So you had um, a moving away from nature, a moving away from nature religions, a moving away from goddess worship, to now we see God as Father. So now we have a Trinitarian view predominantly in the West, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God is male. It's a patriarchal society. And the divine feminine, that nurturing, that aspect of nature and all that, uh, is gone. It's empire building. It's all this stuff. So that would be the masculine age. And he said, we're moving into the new age. And this is around the 1900s. And the new age is the age of the sun. And here's what he meant by that, the age of the sun. He said it's going to be the feminine energies and the masculine energies coming into balance to create something new, to create a third. But he said, but the sun is a child and we are in the throes of birth pains. And he predicted, he said, the next century will be the most violent century that we've seen because this new age, this child that's being born is going to be born from disruption and is going to be born from violence. And we are still seeing that today, aren't we? We're still seeing aspects of that today. So that everything that can be shaken 
is being shaken. So the church systems, they're going to go away. It's my hope and my prayer that people will be talking about religious trauma because this is a hidden thing that people don't even see and don't even know and don't even talk about. But this idea of this Western God who is a megalomaniac terrorist is coming down. That idea is coming down. That idea is not a part of the age that we're moving into. And so the truth be told, we don't know what things are going to look like. We don't know what things are going to change. We don't know what new political structures or what new uh, things might happen <clears throat> in terms of civil rights or racial, racial reconciliation. What we're seeing right now is just a massive disruption of everything, a massive disruption of governments, a massive disruption of uh, – you guys get it. I mean, you're, you're, you're not living under a rock. That's all of this shifting <laughs> of the ages. And so the question then becomes for, I, I think, for myself, what's the path forward? What's the path forward spiritually for people? And I have to ask myself, what is the path forward for me with healing? And so – Really, those of you that listen to me, those of you that follow me in any way, I am putting on display my own healing journey coming out of toxic faith and finding peace, finding joy, finding power that is not coming from a false sense of security that somehow I can please this God in the sky and be okay and make my life go well. It's not coming out of this magical thinking. It's coming from a place of being grounded back into my body, being able to live from my heart, and being able to live with authenticity, being reconnected to sensuality. And again, you have to go back to the beginning. When I'm talking about sensuality, I'm probably not talking about what you think, but coming to my senses, <laughs> coming to my senses, so that I'm in my body, I'm grounded in my body, I can see again. I can hear again. I can feel again. I can give authentic expression again. And so here's what I believe. I believe, I do believe in God the creator. I do believe I've had a relationship with that God since childhood. I believe in the omnipresence of God. I believe that this universe is a temple, an embodiment of God. And that you are divine. Every bit is divine. You're an expression of the divine. I can't get away from that. I can't let go of that. It gives me explanation for synchronicities. It gives me explanation for, like I've talked about in some of these other videos, the supernatural, I mean, undeniable supernatural things. I, I can tell you guys, I, I, wish, <clears throat> I wish I could share a story. Some of you know it. I wish I could share more publicly a story that completely broke my paradigm. And the supernatural sign that went with it that is completely undeniable. But people think I'm crazy. They won't believe me. Um, so those things I hang my hat on. Those things give me hope. But also the flow of life. And so being able to, in this season of my life, let go of all those external trappings. Stop trying to conform my life to a way that other people need me to be, whether it's religious people or whether it's this God that is out there needs me to be. And being able to just come back to my heart and deal with the fact that, man, a lot of the problems that I've had in my life had nothing to do with 
dysfunction in my family or my upbringing or even childhood traumas. It had to do with my faith. It had to do with my concepts of God. And as those have been deconstructed, more and more layers of those calluses upon the heart have been peeled back and more healing has come. It's been extremely disruptive to my life because a person who's indoctrinated in religion, your identity, your, your place in the cosmos is formulated, your story, your personal story is formulated from that indoctrination. You are playing the role in that story. And when that universe, when that heaven gets shaken, gets rearranged, that metathesis that we're talking about happens, you lose your identity. You lose yourself. This is, this is what death to self is. Because you have to let go of all those illusions and all those concepts and all those stories that gave you security, that gave you social currency, that gave you power, that helped you to feel loved even though it was a toxic, abusive kind of love. And you let go of those things. And you have to face the question then, once again, the existential question, who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? And I'm just being totally transparent that I'm in the midst of that process again. I'm a teenager all over again in that sense, because I remember in my teenage years, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? And you have to have a lot of ego strength, and that's why a lot of people can't do this. It's not that they can't see it. It's not that they can't see it. Seeing they can see, or seeing they can't see, it's that their heart is calloused. And their heart's not calloused because they're wicked or evil. Their heart's calloused because they've been wounded by religion. I'm a dear friend, and i got to remember this as I'm going through this process, because I'll get triggered by different things. But she said, just remember, Aaron, they're ever bit as much wounded and serving that false monster god as you were. And so you don't come out of, you know, years of religious indoctrination overnight. You don't heal from that kind of trauma overnight. Thankfully, with many of you, many of us, we're finding a healing community where we can talk about these things honestly. And you can always tell the person who's wounded because they get triggered and have to set you straight. They get triggered and need to prove to you that you're wrong. The only reason they need to prove to you that you're wrong is because they of their own stuff and their own unfinished business and their own pain and their own trauma. So it's important to remember that. So what's the path forward for us? What's the path forward? I think the path forward and the spiritual models that we need to be looking at for this new age, this age of the sun, <laughs> are very grounded in reality very grounded in nature, very grounded in this, this world. That's the feminine part coming back. But I think really it's a time that we're going to have to learn to live from our hearts, that we can find the dwelling, the temple of God in nature, <clears throat> and we can find the temple of God in our own souls and hearts. And that the path forward, the real worship, the real service to God is the releasing <clears throat> of our authenticity, the releasing of our authentic voice, the ability to speak your truth. See, what's happening for so many people is it's not a spiritual journey to healing. 
it's a transitional journey to a different form of doctrine because we're still taking it from the outside in rather than learning how to live authentically from the inside out as an expression of the divine. So in other words, my journey is going to be totally different than yours. Yours. My voice is going to be different than yours. My healing is going to look different than yours. My life is going to look different than yours. My ideologies are going to become different than yours. My beliefs are going to become different than yours. But they're going to be congruent. They're going to be my authentic truth, right, once that healing comes. Or at least congruent for a season until that next layer gets peeled away. But what's happened is people have left Christianity or they've left their, their spiritual path. And because of that insecurity, because their world's been deconstructed, they're looking for something else. So they look for it in books. They look for it in teachers. They look for it in workshops. They want the formulas. They want the patterns. And so all they do is they transfer the same condition of the heart to a different outward form. So that the people who are trying to be spiritual and kill off the flesh uh, have now left Christianity but become part of the love and light movement. And so they're just trying to be all light. And it's not possible. And it's not balanced. And it's not psychologically healthy. Because you ain't all love and light. Just like I ain't all love and light. And all you're doing is putting another perfectionist idea out there that you have to try to live up to. And you put forward. And then you're denying those angry parts of you. You're denying, you're denying the negative side of life. You're still just dealing with trauma. But you're doing it in a different way. Denying the fact that darkness exists, evil exists, and guess what? All this stuff is in you. All this stuff is in you. If you want to approach the Bible, if you got to stick with the Bible, I suggest you go with Neville Goddard. Neville Goddard said, everything in the Bible is merely a state of consciousness that we find inside of man. So that wrathful God, he's inside of you. The loving God, inside of you. <laughs> Moses the lawkeeper, inside of you. Jesus, the Deliverer and Savior, Christ, inside of you. Satan, inside of you. Lake of Fire, inside of you. The Harlot from the Book of Revelation, inside of you. The Bride from the Book of Revelation is inside of you. They're all states of consciousness. That's a healthier way to look at it. But the way forward is not to transfer you know, doctrine and teaching and still eating at the Tree of Knowledge and taking it from the outside. It's, becoming, it's giving yourself permission to heal. It's giving yourself permission to break those loyalty contracts. It's giving yourself permission to escape the trauma bonds. It's giving yourself permission to be human, which means you get pissed off, you get sad, you have sexual urges. All that stuff that religion demonizes is beautiful. And can be properly integrated and can be properly healed. And you begin to love every aspect of yourself. That's the journey I'm on. I'm on the journey to be grounded, to be authentic, to live from my heart, to learn how to love myself, to share this journey with people. And hopefully, in doing so, I'm offering some gift to the world that is fulfilling the reason for which I came. <sighs> okay, guys, that's it. Um, I hope that was helpful for you. Um, we'll keep talking about this. There's more to this. Uh, I did a lot of just tearing and bulldozing today. I know some people are going to watch this and probably get triggered. 
Um, and also, uh, I, I do want to remind you that we're doing the class on the book of Revelation. Some of the things I was saying about Revelation, all that stuff being inside you, Doug's going to talk all about that. You can go to our website, uh, theawakeningcenter.org. Uh, I'll, I'll put the link up there. And you can sign up for the class. It's going to be on a Monday night, three three nights. And he's uh, promising us that this will bring some subconscious healing to us in these areas as well. So it is still possible to use Scripture as a powerful, powerful tool. It is a very powerful tool for transformation. It's just not what we think it is. It's just not what we've been taught it is. It's just not what I taught you that it was. At least that's where I'm at right now. Um, and then we're going to be looking at opening back up uh Looking at it, part of my delay is, uh, and part of why I'm sharing this, is I had another one of those experiences recently where another layer just got, where I had another awakening. I had another metatheme. I had another rearranging and restructuring, and I'm still in the process of that. And so while I'm in the process of that, I'm trying to figure out where do I fit and what does this look like in terms of the awakening center and in terms of my life as I'm going forward. So um, keep me in your thoughts. Keep me in your prayers. As I'm doing that, I know uh, this may be distressing <laughs> to some of you that are, are connected, and I'm sorry about that. Um, I really am. Uh, but I'm committed to authenticity, so uh, I'm committed to being real. And so no pretenses um, with what I'm saying. So we will be getting back together uh, safely and soon. Um, but uh, just let you know where I'm at in that process. So I hope that made sense. hope that wasn't confusing. If you have questions, please feel free to uh, reach out to me and I'll do my best to bring clarification to that. Anyway, love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for all the comments. I hope this was helpful. Um, and God bless you.